Artistic Whispers Productions presents Antithesis Book One Predestination and Other Games of Chance A podcast novel written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net Featuring the vocal talents of Robin Hathaway Stephen H. Wilson Nathan Lowell George Clinsos Kitty Nikian. With original music by Danny Shade. This story contains harsh language, sexual situations, and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. And now, Episode 7. Hi, this is Danny Shade. I'm the co-host of the Reason Driven Podcast, which you can check out at reasondriven.blogspot.com. I also compose and perform the music for Antithesis Book One, the story you're listening to right now. So I hope you enjoy it, and I'm going to present you with the story so far. Cassie Orenthal has more to her than meets the eye. When we met her, she seemed to be just an errand girl hired for a job, but before long, we found out that she's an integral part of the resistance movement prepping for revolution. And in the last episode, we learned that her sister, Jade Oren, is the live-in lover of U.S.-appointed High Court Judge Douglas Reeves. Cassie arranged their relationship to help protect her organization, but now she's having doubts about her sister's loyalty. Doug Reeves, on the other hand, has his own agenda. He sees the survival of the colony as a hopeful sign for the future of the human race, but it's unclear what he sees as threatening that survival. Percy Scott, son-in-law of U.S. Senator Bill Shelley, was on a second honeymoon with his wife Marion when he got a call from his father-in-law calling him back to work. The senator says the job won't require him to travel, so Percy hopes that it will be done quickly, and Marion, who doesn't know the nature of his work, wouldn't have to know. However, when he gets the commission, he goes crazy, screaming and wailing and nearly breaking his hand punching the wall. Marion finds him weeping on a heap on the floor and holds him until he calms down. When she asks what's wrong... He tells her that his brother has just died. Marion tried to steady herself. Coming out of the Axis observation dome, where she'd floated with Percy and watched the Earth revolve below them, and touching solid ground again had left her dizzy. Looking down at her home, seeing the boot of Massachusetts smaller than the freckle on her thumb, she felt as if she'd been let into God's throne room and sat in his chair. And Percy was there, always touching her, clinging to her as if he'd never see her again. They'd picked a good time to go. The crowds were light. They didn't have to fight for space. She'd even found a secret corner away up from the ventilation ducts where she could slip her trousers down to dangle weightless off one ankle. As they braced between the ducts and the architectural stretch, she'd watched the world spinning below them, the light dancing on the Atlantic like sparkles on a Christmas ornament. It felt different floating. She had to work to keep their bodies together. And every time they pushed against each other, they floated apart, bouncing like children on a bed. He'd clung to her, digging his nails into her back, her breasts, her shoulders, as if he was afraid that if she slipped away, she'd never come back. It had been hard not to cry out when they came together. She'd kissed him and screamed into his mouth. 
fixed in her mind was the world turning below them. Now they descended back into the realm of normal gravity, and Marion tried to appear proper as she walked. It wasn't easy. Five straight days of Percy had left her sore and sopping. Even today had been unexpectedly busy, despite their stated determination to give their rubbed raw bits a break. The gravity weighed heavy as they descended on the lift, and when they exited, she tried to step gingerly so that she wouldn't leak any more than she already was. It would show through her slacks, and anyone walking by would know what she'd been doing. Her self-consciousness ratcheted up with every person they passed until she almost thought she heard a gentle squish-squish as she walked. Don't be silly. Your imagination is running away with you. She tried to calm herself, but it was no use. She sucked her bottom lip into her mouth, swollen and raw. Anyone could see it, and if they couldn't, she was sure they could smell her. The thought only stoked the hot flush in her cheeks, but she resolved to enjoy it. No one here knew who she was. There was no one that would talk to the old ladies at the country club about her wanton appearance in public. She was safe. Every time she stepped, her feet didn't want to find the ground. She thought of the way Percy clung to her, and she to him, and she could swear she was still floating. He said his job would allow him more time home next year when his promotion came through. They talked about getting a place away from the family estates and how she was looking forward to having the freedom to write what she wanted rather than always having to be concerned with the family's reputation. They talked about having a baby. Every time she mentioned children, he teared up, put his hand to her face and told her how lucky he was to have a woman like her. Percy, I really have to find a Sam. She'd mentioned it before they got to the lift, but she hadn't wanted to admit out loud why she needed it. He looked at her and arched an eyebrow playfully, and she blushed a deeper shade of purple, now certain that he knew. He pointed out that she'd probably not want to deal with the low-gravity toilets, but since they'd hit near full G, she needed one. Now. There's one ahead a little ways. I saw it on our way up. He nodded at the right side of the thoroughfare, and she spotted the sign between a clothier's and a hat store. Ugh, it's unisex. She knew it shouldn't bother her. It had been common for over a hundred years, but she came from a part of the culture that could still afford the affectation of sex-segregated restrooms. Percy... She didn't want to ask. He made no secret that he thought it was petty of her. But before she could find something else to fill the rest of the sentence, an exasperated sigh erupted next to her. All right, all right, I'll keep the vultures out. He looked irritated. She didn't blame him. She knew it was stupid and childish, but too many years of modesty conditioning were working against her. She walked with him up to the door, where he ducked inside and checked to make sure it was empty. It's clear. She kissed him on the cheek apologetically. He was really angry, and she felt foolish. As she turned towards the door, he grabbed her by the shoulders and pulled her back to him and kissed her deeply. His tongue teased her lips, his nostrils flared his breath onto her cheek, and he squeezed her so tightly that she had to fight for breath. She couldn't keep track of how long he held her. She couldn't decide whether to push him away so she could breathe or hold him closer and never let him go. When he finally eased his grip, she gasped for breath and looked into his eyes. They were cloudy and troubled. He looked at her for a long moment, then leaned down and pressed his forehead to hers, his eyes so close that they blurred into one. I love you, Marion. I love you more than you'll ever know. She smiled gently at him and kept looking into his eyes. I know. She felt the tears rising in her eyes, too. You're more than I could have wished for. I love you, too. 
He pulled back and looked at her as if she was his only lifeline and squeezed her hand reassuringly. Don't worry. I'll be fine. Then he smiled mischievously again, blinking the tears back. You better go in before you get any wetter. He winked at her, and she blushed again, and turned and strode into the restroom, turning left from the foyer into the main room. He stayed behind to keep watch. Sidon was nothing if not ornate. It was designed like a tourist trap, a Las Vegas in the sky, and even though it had developed into more of a way station, the command staff seemed to think it important to keep up appearances to tempt tourists out of a little more of their money as they passed through on their way to Luna or Nineveh or Phobos or Mars. The bathroom could have been plucked from the Arabian Nights, the walls and faux columns sandstone-colored and accented with silk fabrics and decadent murals. It was almost a shame to use a toilet in such a place. But that's not what she was here for in any case. The small ones wouldn't do, not enough room to move around, and the closeness of the walls made her feel trapped. She checked the first of the two larger cubicles designed to handle grav lifts and suppressed a shudder of revulsion at the splatter of urine near the toilet, the large puddle on the floor, and the disused tissue in the corner nearest the door. God, why can't men just use the urinals? The other one was mercifully clean. She ducked into it, silently thanking God for keeping it open. The low-grav sanitary units a few levels up wouldn't even have a toilet, just a suction harness with a disposable contact surface. Here, gravity was enough to do the job. Beside the sand harness, which the natives preferred for their efficiency and sanitation, stood a low polymer toilet with a built-in bidet for tourists. On the hard wall opposite the door, a hemp tissue dispenser hung above the grab bars. It would do. She slid her trousers and panties down to her knees and grabbed a couple of tissues from the dispenser and wiped the dampness from the inside of her thighs. Another couple tissues and... No, even cleaning up this way, she might still leak. The sand harness was right there. It was cleaner and quicker. She hated them. It was too close to using a vacuum cleaner to douche for her comfort. She didn't trust machines in sensitive places. (sighs) She sighed heavily. A little discomfort now really was better than having to stop two or three times more over the next couple of hours, and Percy wouldn't be able to keep the bathroom empty forever. She waddled over to the harness, pushed the button to clamp a new end on it, and fitted it to her mons. She flipped the switch and squeezed, pushing the semen out and off into the ether. She flipped the switch off, put the nozzle into the disposal chute, then examined her slacks, which thankfully hadn't yet been soaked. She pressed a couple more tissues into the crotch of her panties to catch any further leaks, just in case. There was a knock on the cubicle door behind her. It's occupied. Just a moment. She called out, and then hooked her thumbs under the brown silk waistband. Before she could pull them up, the door crashed inwards and a man grabbed her from behind. He pressed one arm across her throat and his other palm to the back of her neck, choking off her pulse and darkening her vision. She struggled to remember what she'd learned about self-defense as a girl. Toes! Toes are vulnerable! She stomped, hard, but her foot glanced off the steel-toed boots. She flailed an arm back, clawing for his face. Eyes! I can get his eyes! She scratched, trying to get a handle on his dodging hand, but her fingers slid harmlessly off the slick polyfiber mask. Her vision was almost gone, choked off from lack of oxygen. She planted her left heel and twisted her body rapidly. Her elbow landed square in his diaphragm. He gasped sharply and let her go, but she didn't have any balance and stumbled forward onto the floor. She couldn't get her arms around in time to catch herself. Her nose hit the tile and collapsed into her skull with a squishing crack, and her world exploded in a blinding curtain of white pain. Percy. She tried to call out, but her throat felt as if it had been crushed. Percy. Percy! Help! 
Her voice regained its strength as her breath remembered where to flow. She heard her assailant staggering around behind her and coughing. She didn't have any more than a few seconds left. She sucked in as much breath as she could and screamed at the top of her voice. Percy! She heard his footsteps pounding around the corner and into the room. She managed to turn her head around to see him come through the doorway, a look of stricken panic on his face. Before he could take in the situation, he was struck from behind by a gun butt and collapsed. A second man, also wearing a polyfiber hood, stepped through over his body and produced a ball gag, shoving it roughly into Percy's mouth. No sooner was the sound past her lips than she was yanked from behind by her hair, and a ball gag forced roughly into her mouth. A black bag came down across her eyes and was tied tightly around her throat, and she saw nothing more. She struggled, but they were already tying her hands to the grab bar, and her feet were lashed together with a cord. She sobbed through her gag hood, pulling against the bonds, trying blindly to curl into the wall. She wanted to promise them money. She wanted to beg them to stop. A heavy thud, followed by another... And another, off to her right, where Percy was. What are they doing to him? Oh, God. She wanted to save Percy. She thrashed around as best she could, but every move was stabbing pain as her nose rubbed against the mask. Her brain kept trying to faint, slip away into the safety of oblivion. But before the world could slip away, a needle pricked the left side of her neck. The chilly tile against her bare belly suddenly came into sharp focus. Whatever they injected her with heightened every nerve in her body. There. That should keep you nice and lucid. The voice was cold and cruel, gravelly and sneering like a drunk who'd taken too much pleasure in kicking his dog at too young an age and had kept the habit. Now this doesn't have to be unpleasant. We have a message for you. She felt cold steel against the back of her thigh, and she jumped. It slipped its way inside her panties, and she felt the edge as the knife was turned and sliced them away. She tried to pull up and away, but one of them grabbed her ankles and yanked her legs out straight, then laid a boot across them and pressed hard so she couldn't move. Oh God, they're going to rape me. They're going to rape me and kill us both. Please, God, do something. Help us. She prayed as hard as she could, desperately pleading for anything she could do to get them all to go away. But God didn't answer. Now, do I have your attention? He wants my cooperation. If I cooperate, he'll go away. She nodded and grunted a yes. Good. Now, in a few weeks, the lunar colony is going to declare independence from the United States. The declaration has to be ratified by the Senate Space Affairs Committee to be legal. Your father controls the swing voting block on the committee. It was like they were speaking in tongues. None of it made sense. The words skated through her mind without meaning anything. You're going to make sure he votes to ratify. Do you understand? If he doesn't... She heard a terrible sound, like gristle being stripped from meat. What are they doing to him? We'll do to your little sister what we've done to your bodyguard. Oh, God. What have they done to him? Percy! She jerked and tried to scream through her gag, but it was no use. The boot on her legs pressed harder until it felt like it would break her bones. You'll make sure your father votes for independence. Do you understand? She nodded vigorously in the darkness. <laughs> Good. Only one more thing and we'll be on our way. The voice choked and spat as it talked. Two powerful sets of hands grabbed her and held her down. She felt warm water dripping on the small of her back, right at her tailbone. 
And then it started. A slick, sharp pain, slicing in long strips across her skin. God, no, please. Underneath the searing, sickly, gliding pain of the knife, the wound stung, sharp like someone was pouring the sea into them with every warm drop that hit her back. She tried not to imagine what was slicing her to ribbons. Don't worry. It's far enough down that you can still win a beauty contest. The satanic voice said as it dribbled more of the hot liquid onto her. It took forever. The slicing blade, the stinging rain. Marion kept sobbing until her head throbbed like the inside of a punching bag. Then, suddenly, mercifully, another needle stabbed her neck and she slipped away into a more insular darkness. She heard nothing more. Percy stood up over Marion's drugged, mutilated body and wiped the tears from his eyes. He turned to his assistants, men whose names he did not know and did not care to, and accepted the proffered envelope containing his new identity to replace the one he'd planted on the corpse. He nodded at them curtly and motioned for them to leave. I'll clean up here. His throat hurt from the raspy voice he'd been using and was tight with unrequited sobs. He wanted them gone before he killed them both. Cutting the face off the corpse that was doubling for him had given him no relief. They were both professionals. They returned his curt nod and left, closing the cubicle door behind them. Percy went over to the corpse laying on the floor and pushed it roughly with his boot further towards the wall, the blood smearing behind it. A specially grown clone, it looked like him in every way save for having been awakened. He envied that lack of awareness. The face that he'd cut away and peeled off lay on the floor next to the body. A ghoulish, empty mirror. He took the heel of his boot and ground it into the lifeless flesh until his boot heel bit through the skin on the tile floor. He picked up a few stray hairs that might be used for DNA identification of his partner's. He silently prayed that Bill had gotten a proper clone grown for this. An immature one wouldn't hold up under scrutiny. He stepped back and surveyed the scene. When he saw Marion there, stretched out before him, the words, Lay off Luna, carved deep into her hips, he broke. <laughs> his sobs filled the air for a long while more of his tears falling down into and cleansing those fresh wounds. He took the knife he had used, cleaned it carefully, and put it back into its customary sheath on his belt. There was nothing more to do here, and he had to get off station before the bodies were discovered. He went to the cubicle door and stepped outside, pausing once more to look on the woman he loved most in the world. I love you, Mary. I'm sorry. He took out a magnet from his hip pocket and vowed to himself that he would find some way to get back to her and prayed that she'd never know it was him. He closed the door, pressed the magnet to the latch, and dragged it violently to the left. The door was locked. He turned his back to it and walked back out into the street. With all due respect to the Honorable Senator from Massachusetts, 
Samuel Solon's scorn was unmistakable, and his slight and willowy figure didn't diminish the power of his presence in the least. His rich, thick savannah accent floated like froth on the dark beer of his deep vibrato. It is manifestly clear that the Luna Colony does not intend simply to rebrand Loxcore coupons as an official currency. This is another step on a road that reliable intelligence tells us is going to end soon in a declaration of independence and the unification of the off-world colonies into a financial and military confederation. Senator Sola, you and I know the men in this government. Bill Shelley was the senior Bostonian in the Senate, and he wasn't about to put up with the ramblings of a southerner who was a sophomore in both senses of the word. All of them. Every single one was recommended to the White House for appointment to the Luna Board by directors of this very committee. This is not a situation of colonial natives getting restless and pining for revenge. This is a matter of the colony growing beyond our ability to economically administrate it at a distance. We have to give them this latitude so they don't feel the need to break with us. Do you honestly expect this committee to trust our national security to nepotism? Do you realize how little effort it would take them to wipe out this city if they put their mind to it? Solon chose to ignore the page who entered and whispered something in Bill's ear. They wouldn't need weapons or anything our orbital defenses can detect and shoot down. They'd only need a handful of boulders and a mass driver. Have you gone completely thick? Shelley kept questioning his page for another moment, then leaned back into the conversation. I've just received a disturbing report. We will adjourn for the evening. We'll reconvene tomorrow morning at 9.30. Senator Solon will have the floor at this time. He gaveled the meeting to a close and strode quickly over to the edge of the room. Solon watched Shelley as the elder senator pulled the page into a corner and spoke quietly with him. Shelley appeared agitated, then upset, and then left hurriedly through the side door. The report was satisfactory, the mission successful. Percy had once again proven his reliability. Reliability would be crucial for what would come next. Bill strode quickly down the hall to his office and closed the door softly behind him. A hard copy of the report was on his desk. He poured himself a glass of water with a slice of lemon and picked up the manila folder and paged through it as he paced nervously around the room. The operation had gone off without a hitch. Excellent. Percy would be waiting for the next part of his assignment. He dropped the hard copy on his desk and opened his terminal, hurriedly encrypting and sending the dispatch. Once it was off, he called up the communications net to place an interplanetary call. Time for phase two. (sighs) Was it the flashing or the noise that woke him? I asked for no calls. Doug grumbled at the computer. Priority message from Washington, D.C. Sender ID 653-326-382703. It took a moment for the number to register, and then another to remember where he kept the profanity for occasions like this. God damn it. It was the last number he wanted to hear from. He plaintively wished he were in the grip of a deeply irritating dream. But the beeping continued. Doug glanced over at the clock, hoping he was still dreaming. The binary display glared tauntingly at him with a single red light in the second column to the left. 0200? What the hell kind of tree-bound thumbless simian called it 0200? Fine, fine. Shut the bloody alarm off. Doug growled at the computer as he shuffled out of bed, trying not to wake Jade, and made his bleary way into the neighboring room. 
What? He demanded of the terminal. Bill Shelley's face appeared on the screen. Well, that fucking figures. Doug, how are you? I'm naked and cold and very tired, Bill. This is the wrong time for a conference call with your committee. What do you want? Sorry to disturb you. I forgot about the time difference. Fine. What do you want? The cold from the floor ate up through the calluses on the soles of his feet. He made a mental note to change the climate control settings. I need a favor. It's personal. Bill had a disturbingly familiar look on his face. No, Bill. I don't do that anymore. Once was enough, never again. It can't hurt me anymore. And I don't have to remind you what it would do to you if it came out. Bill's facade cracked, and malice spilled through the wound. Don't you even think of- Spare me. Cutting someone off with a three-second communications delay was a practiced art. I report to you because of the position you have, and only for another few days. I don't work for you anymore. Well, don't give me that shit, Doug. You don't believe in this sham any more than I do. If Luna secedes, we got no defense. Earth will always be at the mercy of the colonies, politically and economically. You want those redneck bastards who mine the tunnels below you calling the shots on interplanetary policy? Doug started to retort, but he bit it off short like he'd been slapped in the face. Something had changed. What's happened, Bill? What do you mean? Doug moved his finger near the disconnect button. He was too old, too cold, and too tired to be playing politics with a weasel anymore. You've built your career on supporting lunar autonomy. Tell me what's going on, or I hang up on you and block your number. Damn it, Doug, you owe me. I owe you shit. Goodbye, Bill. Doug reached groggily for the shutoff switch. Doug, wait. Bill looked around furtively, and his voice dropped to nearly a whisper. Maybe you don't owe me anything anymore. Maybe the loonies are your people now. But someone, someone in your camp, oh God, they took a knife to Marion and they carved her up. Doug pulled his hand back from the switch. What? Little Marion? What the fuck is going on here? She's not so little anymore. Yeah, I got the wedding invitation. What happened? She's gonna be scarred. Oh, God. Doug watched the screen as his old comrade fought back tears. He, they, beat her and cut her clothes off. They killed her husband, cut his face right from his skull right in front of her. He grabbed a handkerchief, but through the rage in his voice and the tears in his eyes, Doug saw something else that he couldn't put his finger on. They sliced a message into her skin. Lay off Luna. A picture of the mutilation appeared on the screen, and Doug shuddered involuntarily at the sight. When he'd changed her diapers, when Bill was his legal clerk and he was a friend of the family, he'd never imagined he'd see her like this. He forced his face to say stoic. There would be time for disgust and grief when the call was done. Bill kept talking. She'll be okay, I think. But I want that asshole to pay. I want you to catch him for me. Doug waited for a moment, for the sake of decorum conveying the impression that he was considering helping out. No matter how fond of Marion he was, it was completely out of the question. The political damage was done. Bill was now an adversary, and helping catch Marion's attackers wouldn't change the fact that the U.S. government now saw Luna as sponsoring terrorism. Any political support he was depending on had just evaporated. I'm sorry, Bill. I can't run a mission for you. I know it's personal, but, but I have... Doug caught himself before he said, more important. Other obligations. I'm sorry about Marion. Doug severed the link. The floor's cold was creeping inside. He shook his head and breathed deliberately to help himself relax. Tomorrow was going to be a nightmare. He needed to relax as quickly as possible and get his sleep. Jade was still snoring softly when Doug returned to bed. 
She'd edged over onto his side, probably searching for warmth against the chill night. The nights were very cold up here at the surface when the sun went behind the horizon. Luna City ran on batteries and reactor power when the sun was gone, and it was much more expensive to heat the rooms than it was to cool them. Doug idly wished he'd gotten an apartment underground instead of insisting on one with a view of Mare Imbrium. The stars were cold and stared through the window in their bedroom like unforgiving judges at an unrepentant rapist. He shook off the chill of dread that crept up through his scrotum into the small of his back. Carefully easing his way into the tangle of Jade's limbs, he did what he could to let her stay nuzzled closer to him than was really comfortable. She was a lot more susceptible to cold than he was. Doug tried to go to sleep, but the image of little Marion with a knife slowly slicing her hips kept him awake most of the night. He'd been lucky enough not to see Bill or the family in person for 15 years, and he knew that she must be close to 30 by now. But when he closed his eyes and saw the knife creeping through her flesh like the blade of a plow, he didn't see a woman. He saw the barely pubescent body of the sprightly 13-year-old he'd godfathered for so many years. And there was the other problem. Someone in his organization, not just on his side, but in the resistance underground he'd created, was carving up little girls and thinking they'd gain something from it. It left the whole project exposed. It was the kind of thing that the U.S. would go to war over. Doug sat bolt upright. Fuck. That was why Bill had called. He was warning him that war was coming, and far sooner than the colonies were prepared for it. They hadn't even ratified the official treaty forming the Federation yet. They had nothing but retrofitted merchant ships for military. If whoever did this wasn't stopped, there would be a war, and the colonies would probably lose. Not on my watch, we won't. Doug got out of bed again and looked at the clock. Oh, 06.30. Might as well shower anyway. The sun wouldn't be up for 36 hours yet, but Doug had an appointment at 8. As he walked by the wall terminal in the living room, he stopped to make a call. Computer, get me Washington, D.C., 653-326-382703. A moment later, Bill's automated answering service appeared on the screen and politely requested that a message be left. Senator Shelley, send me all pertinent information and records to my box to Capitol. I'll bring this before the board. We'll have a formal response delivered to your committee in 48 hours. I've taken steps to ensure the erasure of all communication records on your end. Doug then ordered the computer to load a virus onto the subnet. In 15 minutes, all logs on both ends of the call would be destroyed. He took comfort in the fact that it was dark outside. You've been listening to Episode 7 of Antithesis, Book 1, Predestination, and Other Games of Chance. Written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer, with original music by Danny Shade. This episode starred Robin Hathaway as Marion Shelley, Stephen H. Wilson as Percy Scott, Nathan Lowell as Senator Bill Shelley, George Klensos as Douglas Reeves, and Kitty Nakin as the computer voice. Some sounds courtesy the Free Sound Project at www.freesound.org. Other sounds copyright 2008 Kitty Nakian and Artistic Whispers Productions. This audiobook was recorded, edited, and mixed at Artistic Whispers Productions in Castro Valley, California. The book is copyright 1997 and 2008 J. Daniel Sawyer, and the recording is copyright 2008 Artistic Whispers Productions. This recording is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.0 license, and all other rights are reserved to the author. <laughs>